Would you please follow uh, in your own copy of Scripture? However, that copy comes into your hand, or just listen to the reading of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Ephesians, the first chapter, verses 15 to 20. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is the Word of God. Allow me to begin with a question. How do you describe the religious act of prayer, and how do you think we should learn to pray? In asking those two questions, or that two-part question, I'm making at least two assumptions. One, I'm assuming that we are religious beings, that we know that God is there, and that we should give attention to our relationship to God. And two, I'm assuming that prayer is a serious activity, not casual, and that we all need instruction about prayer. We do not naturally pray as we naturally breathe. No parent ever has to say to his two-year-old, now here is how you breathe, and then demonstrate how breath is taken into the body. We do that naturally. Prayer is not like that. It is something that requires serious thought and some sort of instruction from those who have experience in the religious exercise that prayer is. The passage we've just read in Ephesians 1 can teach us much about prayer. Of course, if we started reading straight through the Bible, we would have lots of other passages that teach us about prayer. There are the recorded prayers of Abraham, Moses, the recorded prayers of David and the prophets. Many of the Psalms are the recorded prayers of David or Moses or Ezra. And then when we come to the second major part of the Bible, the Christian Bible, we meet Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he is often praying to his Father. We are given descriptions of him and his prayers as he offered them to God. And then, of course, Matthew gives us that well-known prayer that Jesus taught his disciples that is often made the part of the liturgy of Christian congregations. But I hope, my friends, that as we keep learning from our Bibles, 
we will be attracted to the prayers of Paul the Apostle that are found in his letters to churches or to individuals. We just read one of those here in Ephesians 1. Now, there's a distinction that's been made between what has been called Paul's prayer reports and Paul's prayer wishes. The prayer reports are more specific. And Paul will say, I pray for you, and then spells out very particularly and concretely what he's praying. The prayer wishes are less specific. We're given enough information to understand that there's a prayerful spirit in Paul, but we're not necessarily given details. Ephesians 1, 15 to 20 is a prayer report. We are told specifically what Paul prayed. If my memory is not failing me this evening, I think that distinction between prayer report and prayer wish is used by Dr. Don Carson in his invaluable book, published now under the title, Praying with Paul. I did not take the time to read the first pages of the book to confirm that this is Dr. Carson's way of distinguishing Paul's prayers, but I will tell you that I've made careful use of Dr. Carson's exposition of this Ephesians 1 prayer, and if I say anything this evening that might be particularly helpful in our examining of this prayer, it's probably going to be a reflection of what I've gleaned from Dr. Carson. Now, one brief word on the opening phrase of our passage, translated in the ESV for this reason. The short phrase in the Greek text reads literally, therefore I also. That's literally what Paul is saying. Therefore I also. And I'm persuaded that Paul is referring back to everything that we have found in that marvelous pouring out of praise that we have studied already, briefly studied, in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. It's one long sentence, you remember, it's one complex sentence. Uh, our English versions divided into uh, separate sentences that make the reading uh, easier for us, but it really is one complex sentence in the Greek text, all of verses 3 to 14, and Paul is now connecting this to that gush of praise, and he is saying, now also this is what I pray. Now how do we understand this? Well, verses 15 and 16 are really the kind of introductory word that you will often find at the very beginning of one of Paul's letters. This reason I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love to all the saints. I do not cease to pray for you. Paul says, you believe in Christ, you love other believers. That's the uh, most basic description or understanding that Paul has of what true Christians do. They believe in Christ, they love one another. Paul says, I've heard about you, you reflect those things, and now he's going to begin to pray for them. But what we have here, dear people, in this prayer is a very careful connecting of the concerns or the request of the prayer to this gush of praise. In other words, when Paul says in verse 3, look back at verse 3 for just a moment. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. Now question, has God really done that or not? Is that true? Here we are tonight, a gathering of pretty normal people living in Roanoke, Virginia, or close by Roanoke, Virginia. Is it true for all of us that God has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing, every blessing that he has from the Spirit because of our union with Christ? Those blessings are ours. You see, you could read that and say, well, Paul's just been carried off in his own ecstasy. I mean, we understand this man is so highly spiritual and he's so, he's so attuned to, to the religious sentiments that uh, have uh, marked his life for years and years and he's just carried off into his own private praise. No, that's not the way we should read verses 3 to 14. Verses 3 to 14 are laying out for us all that God has done for us in Christ by the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But now, Paul is going to pray that we will experience more of those things that we already have. Now, Dr. Carson has an illustration of this that I'm going to make use of. He asks the question, are you as a Christian persuaded that the Lord Jesus Christ at some future time a day, an hour ordained of God, already fixed by God, that he will part the heavens and come back to planet earth again. Are you persuaded that there is a yet future advent of Christ and that this present age will come to an end and Jesus Christ himself is going to return? He will come back to this earth to judge the living and the dead. Are you convinced of that? And I hope Every Christian can say, Amen. Yes, I believe that. I'm persuaded that that is true. And yet, my friends, do not we readily take up the prayer of the Apostle John that closes the New Testament canon? John writes, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Our conviction that Christ will come, leads us to pray that he will come. It enlarges and intensifies our expectation and our earnest request that he will come again. Certainty of having the blessings of grace leads Paul to pray more earnestly for those blessings. So we come to Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 1. And there are three lines of thought that we're going to pursue together. Let's consider the God to whom this prayer is addressed. Secondly, the provision, the provision asked of God. And third, the experiences, plural, expected from God. First of all, then, the God to whom this prayer is addressed. And there are two designations, you might even call these titles, that are given to God in the first half of verse 17. Look at it, please. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he is called the Father of glory. 
He is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's possible to read that and just think that that's another reference that Paul is making to the relationship that Christ has with God the Father in the Trinity. But it's actually more. And that's clear from Paul's use of the word our Lord Jesus Christ. He is not simply the Father of Christ in the mysteries of the Godhead. He is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ in the wonders of His grace. In other words, He is God to us in all the ways that Christ makes Him God to us. He's not undefined, vaguely spiritual. No, He is our God in every way that Christ has made Him our God. And that means, my friends, that God really is our Father. We are taught to pray, our Father who is in heaven. Yes, we go to God in reverence, always in reverence. And yet, brothers and sisters, we have the liberty liberty of climbing up in God's lap. Climbing up in his lap and saying, Daddy. That's what Abba means. There's reverence, but there's intimacy. God really is our Father, and we don't need to hide things from Him. We we can go to Him and tell Him everything that's going on. We don't have to play games. We we don't have to think that we're going to sneak something over on Him. He, He knows our hearts, and we can go to Him and open our hearts to Him. God really is our Father, and so our privileges extend beyond our being justified and forgiven of our sins. That's our most basic need, to be right with God the judge. But my friends, we have more. We are connected intimately to God who is our Father. We are His sons and daughters. God really is our Father, and so we need not fear that He will abandon us and that we'll be thrown out of His family. How many of us Now, maybe someone did. Maybe there's someone here tonight who was brought into a family where there was such a withholding of love, where there was perhaps even a severity, that maybe you really did live with the fear that you could be abandoned. You've known the experience of thinking, am I going to just be tossed out? Are they just going to say, out of here and, and throw you away? There are people that have lived with that. But most of us never lived that way. Most of us grew up in families where we knew we were loved and we knew that our fathers would never turn away from us, that they would always love us. And that's the way it is is even more with those of us who can say, our father, never to be abandoned. So he's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, he's the Father of glory. The word glory is used many times in Scripture. And often in both Testaments, in fact, this is the usual force of the word glory. Often, the word simply means God displayed. It's God revealing himself. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
John eleven forty, Jesus says to Martha, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Glory is God displaying himself. But there are texts in which God's glory is a synonym for his power. Paul can say in Romans 6, 4, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also should walk in newness of life. What's Paul saying? Raised from the dead by the power of God. Glory can be a synonym for divine power. And I'm persuaded that's the way Paul is using the word here. He is the father of glory. He is the father of power. In other words, he's our father who has unlimited power to answer everything that Paul is going to pray in this prayer. And that brings us, secondly, to the provision asked of God. The God to whom this prayer is addressed and now secondly, the provision asked of God. And Paul describes that provision in verses 17b and 18a. Look at it, please. May give you, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. There's more in those phrases than I'm able to capture in one statement, but I've, I've made an effort to capture it with one statement, and here's, here's my best effort. Paul is praying for a Holy Spirit-given, growing knowledge of God that floods the heart with sanctifying knowledge. Not all knowledge has a sanctifying influence. There is a knowledge that makes the heart proud and eventually hardens the heart. Not all knowledge, not all theological knowledge is the kind of knowledge that Paul is praying for here. He's praying for a Holy Spirit-given, growing knowledge of God that floods the heart with sanctifying knowledge. Now, I want to unpack that with some reflection and application. Number one, let's be sure that we're gripped with the fact that Paul is earnestly seeking God for more of the knowledge of God. The word that he uses at the end of verse 17 is the Greek word epigonosko. Some of you may remember that there are two words for knowledge used in the Greek New Testament. There's oida, which just means information, intellectual apprehension of information. And then there is gnosko, which refers to uh, an experiential knowledge. Joseph knew not Mary until she had brought forth her firstborn son. He didn't know Mary. Well, he knew her name, and he knew the color of her eyes, but he didn't really know Mary until after Jesus had been born. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
But here Paul uses epigonosko. It's experiential knowledge, but he, he underscores it, he strengthens it with real, full experiential knowledge. My friend, do you pray to God for more of the knowledge of God? And remember, we're talking about the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the knowledge of God that we're seeking in prayer, again, is not simply more information. Paul is telling us that we come to know God more fully as we pray that we will know Him more fully. Second, this growing knowledge of God that we're seeking is Holy Spirit-given with the most practical results. It's Holy Spirit-given. Now, look again at verse 17. That He may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. How many of us, how many of you, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be with you in this, okay? I'm, I'm in the category, and I'm asking if others of you are in the same category with me. How many of you have been taught that revelation has been finished? That revelation has been completed in the canon of the New Testament, and there is no longer any revelation. That revelation is not ongoing. Now, I've been taught that. Indeed, I have taught that to others. And it's not wrong. It's not wrong. It's an effort to underscore the fact that whatever illumination may be given to teachers or to preachers, there's no one today speaking words from God that we should copy down and staple uh, in the middle of our Bibles. And, and whatever, whatever your views of prophecy may be, whatever understanding you may have of certain spiritual gifts, I, I hope we're all agreed there's no one anywhere speaking and writing things that should be copied and distributed to the whole Christian world and we all put it in our Bibles. Nothing like that. So, the word revelation has been used theologically to refer to that important principle. But what Paul says in this passage is that we need the Holy Spirit to give us revelation. That's the word he uses. And the reason that's important, my friend, is because he's asking something here that only the Spirit of God can do. He's asking for the light of God to flood our hearts and minds in such a way that truth is transforming for us. While I was preparing this, uh, several weeks ago actually, I remember a quote of John Wesley, and uh, strangely, and my brain operates in strange ways, strangely, I, I even remembered where I heard this John Wesley quote. It was when I first came to Grace Church in 1978, and in 1978, there was a, a huge tape library, cassette tapes. Now, some of you young people, you don't even know what a cassette tape is, right? Um, 
John, have, have you ever had a cassette tape? You have? Oh, well, I need to ask somebody else my question. <clears throat> Carly, have you ever had a cassette tape? No. See? Well, there was a day when cassette tapes were the thing. That was the that was cutting-edge technology, and many of us had those little cassette recorders. We didn't have, we didn't have uh, uh, something in our car where you plug the things in. We had to carry around these little cassette recorders with four batteries. And I spent a lot of time in those days listening to lectures and sermons that were in the Grace Church Library. And one of them was a lecture by Dr. Packer given at Westminster Seminary on the development of the doctrine of Scripture. That's what the lecture was on. The development of the doctrine of Scripture. And in that lecture, Dr. Packer gives a quote from John Wesley. And I wrote it down in my Bible, and I've transferred it to other Bibles over the years. And somehow my brain connected, and I even remembered which Bible it was still in. And here's the quote. Wesley said, I am a creature of a day, soon to drop into eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God has written it down. He has put it in a book. Then give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is wisdom enough for me. I sit down with it. Only God is here. I lift up my heart and ask for light, and then I read, and what I read, I teach. My friend, do you know something of that with your Bible? I'm not saying we experience this every morning. I, I don't experience anything close to this every morning. There are mornings when my heart is so cold and so cloddish that I have a hard time concentrating on what I'm trying to read. But are there times when you feel God is here, God is here, and here is his word. Give me light, Lord. Let me understand what you're saying and what I understand. Let me communicate to others. That's what Paul is concerned for here. This growing knowledge of God is Holy Spirit given with the most practical results because Paul goes on to pray for wisdom. Not just knowledge, you see, but for wisdom. And he's using the word wisdom not as the Greeks would use it. The Greeks would talk about wisdom to refer to the intelligence of the human brain and how much the mind could comprehend and all the theories that intelligent men could discuss in certain quarters. But no, Paul is writing as a Jew, thinking as a Jew. And wisdom is that impartation of the knowledge of God, the truth of God that transforms the heart and that we then live out. But thirdly, this growing knowledge of God which Paul prays for comes with increased illumination and then transformation. Look at the opening of verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Not just, okay, 
Focus on the text. Understand the meaning of the words. Get the connections between verb and rest of the... That's important. But Paul says the eyes of your heart. Uh, There's something going on on the inside. In other words, this is is experience, my friends. We're, We're talking about experience. We're talking about something that goes on in the soul. I believe this is what Paul has in mind at the close of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Listen to the way Paul ends 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And that's a a rather complicated formulation. The Lord, Christ, is the Spirit. He's not denying the distinction of persons in the Godhead. He has a particular concern for the language in this passage. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's what Paul is praying for in Ephesians 1, that there would be this marvelous encounter. I'll use that word. There would be this marvelous encounter between our souls and the truth, and that as we step into a knowledge of the written word, what we find is the living word, what we find is the Christ who lives in his word and who by his grace transforms us. We, we really are, by His grace, becoming more like His Son. I was thinking the other day about someone that I'd known years ago, and I found myself thinking about a certain way in which that person was not very Christ-like. I didn't think he was very Christ-like. And then I was able to say, Lord, you've made him a better man. I I, I bet if I met him, I bet if I met him on the street today, I'd find a different man. And I believe that. I think that man would be different. He's still walking with Christ. He's still in the faith. He's still going on. What's Christ been doing? Christ has been changing him more and more. He's been transforming him more and more. And by His grace, that's what, that's what He can do with all of us. So, we've considered the God to whom this prayer is offered, the provision asked of God, this growing knowledge of God, and then the experiences expected from God. And I'm going to be very brief here. I'm not going to try to work out all the details that I might have anticipated. But it's obvious as we look back at our passage in Ephesians 1 that Paul prays for hope, inheritance, and power. Look at verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that, here it is, you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? 
So I want you to know three things, Paul says. I want you to know more about your hope. I want you to know more about this inheritance that God has. And I want you to know more of the power of God. Now, hope, my friends, biblically, is certain expectation, confident expectation of something in the future that's not yet fully ours, but we know that it will be. I've said this a number of times. We don't use the word hope commonly like the Bible uses it. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Um, and, and I do hope it doesn't rain tomorrow because I need to cut my grass. And, and I don't want it to go another day, so I really do hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. That's something desired, but not certain. Hope is something that we, that we don't yet fully have biblically. We don't yet fully have it, but we know that we will. And the hope that Paul is praying for here is what is yet awaiting us when we meet Christ, when we find ourselves conformed to Christ, and we enter into the fullness of our inheritance. That's what we're to be expecting. Um, I'm going to use politics as an illustration, all right? And don't get nervous. I've thought about this carefully. I was listening to a radio talk guy recently, and I'll just say he's the most successful one, okay? He's, he's the radio talk guy who has the most success. So you know, you know who I'm talking about, right? He's got more listeners than anybody else on the radio. And this man has peculiar ability to speak with sarcasm, and he's a master at sarcasm and scorn. He can turn on the scorn and sarcasm with his voice in a way that probably makes a lot of people turn him off. But he was speaking about those people who are so idealistic that they are not enthused about the current occupant of the White House. Now, I'm not at all concerned about who you voted for in 2016 or who you'll vote for in 2020. That's between you and the Lord, and I have no concern about that whatsoever. But he was talking to people who just are not enthused about the current occupant of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And this is what he said. He said, with go ahead, go ahead, and hold on to your ideals. And you won't have it until you stand before the pearly gates. And when I heard that, I said, that's it. That's me. That's right. What I want, what I'm waiting for, I'll never have in this life. It doesn't matter who occupies the White House. It doesn't matter what, what the balance is and what the, the, the party allotments are in, in, in the houses of Congress. It won't matter, my friends. And when I step into that 
new heaven and new earth through the pearly gates. It's not until then that I will have everything that my heart desires. I'm not saying that we should check out politically. I confess that I've become more, more concerned about where our nation is headed since I had a granddaughter. My, my granddaughter is going to be living in this nation long after I'm in the grave. I want her to live in a stable society where she has freedom and where, God willing, she'll be able to train her own children in the ways of God. I, I know that we have to be concerned about those things, rightly, as Christian citizens. But our greatest concerns are never with things that we can touch with our fingers and see with these physical eyes. It's about that unseen world to which we're headed. And then Paul prays here that we would know more of the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, let me explain this very briefly. There are two ways to read that statement. Do you see it? Again, in verse 18, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? One way to read that statement is to say, we have an inheritance. God has blessed us richly with what is waiting for us. It's our inheritance. And there are texts that clearly speak of that, okay? But the other way to understand this text, and I believe a better way, is to understand that we are the inheritance that God is making for himself. That God is preparing something for himself, for his own pleasure. That God is working and accomplishing things in the lives of his people. And those people are his inheritance. And he is going to have the joy, yes, the joy and the holy pleasure of saying, these are mine. These are my people. They belong to me. Look what my grace has accomplished. His glorious inheritance in the saints. And then the third thing that Paul prays for is that we would experience not only hope, inheritance, but also power. And it's very clear from verse 20 that Paul is praying that we would know the same power of God that raised Christ from the dead. And God willing, I'll have the privilege of opening the word two weeks from tonight, and we're going to come back to that point in the passage and examine what Paul has to say about the power of God, particularly as it's displayed in the exaltation of Christ, who is the head of the church. But I want to close this evening with two questions. Number one, if you made a transcript of your prayers to God, let's say over the past two weeks, where would the emphasis of your prayers be found? Where would the burden of your prayers be? Oh, Lord, bless me in my job this week. Lord, my right knee is sure hurting. Guide the doctor to give me the right medication. Lord, I'm dreading next weekend when the in-laws come for a visit. Give us a good and peaceful time. 
Lord, America's going down the tubes. Please make things better in our country like they used to be. And Lord, bless the missionaries. Now, I'm not suggesting that any of those concerns are inappropriate for our prayers. But my friends, those things ought not be the burden of our prayers. The burden of our prayers should reflect the priorities that we learn from the Apostle Paul. But then, here's the second question that I want to ask this evening. If you were called to stand before the living God tomorrow, if May the 27th, 2019, was the appointed day where you would stand before Almighty God, do you believe that God would welcome you into his heaven? Would he say, come, enter, welcome? Now, if in your mind, if in your mind you begin to think, yes, God would because I have, and you start reciting to yourself things about you, things you've done, my friend, you wouldn't get in. The gate of heaven would not open to you if what you have to tell God is what you have done, what you are. The gate of heaven would only open if we are able to say, Oh God, there's nothing that I've done or could ever do to get my way into heaven, but I'm standing, trusting in Christ. I'm standing, depending on your Son alone and what He did on the cross for, for poor sinners like me. I'm trusting in Jesus Christ to get me into heaven. You know, in recent days, excuse me, my, my hearing aids are popping. I, I don't know what, they start popping in my ears. <clears throat> and so I'm taking them out. But in recent days, the media has been filled with accounts of the tornadoes and severe rains that have come to a large part of our nation. Tornadoes hitting all over Oklahoma. My older brother lives in Oklahoma. I called him a couple days ago to say, you okay? How close did they come? All kinds of properties destroyed in Oklahoma, Missouri. And I've watched the up-close video of fellow Americans who've been terrified Whole houses falling in on a family. And most of those people say something like this. Have you heard them? Most of those people will say, we were so scared. We were, we were so frightened. And we prayed to God to save our lives. And, and he did. 
And, and I'm so, I've, I've, I've seen women beginning to tremble, tears in their eyes. And I, I'm so thankful that all my children are alive. Our house is gone, but, but I still have my family. Oh, thank God that he saved our lives. You heard those people? Now, I'm sure that some people who've been watching those reports have said to themselves, well, of course. Of course people are praying. They're scared out of their wits. And they suddenly feel so desperate that, that they start praying. Of course, what do you expect? People don't want to die, and so they get religion real quick. But there's another way to understand those testimonies. And I believe, my friends, this is much more the wiser way. The other way is to understand that these people have everything stripped away and they suddenly realize how helpless they are before God. And I'm probably talking to some people tonight who, who may be at points, maybe at points in this service you've, you've felt something in your soul. Maybe, maybe there were a couple of lines in one of the songs that emotionally connected and you, and, and you felt something in your soul, but, but you're able to say to yourself, hey, I'll get over this. I, I got to get back to work. I, I, I got to get back to my usual activities, and, and, uh, and I'm going to be just fine. You're not going to be just fine. Not tonight. Not tomorrow, not ever, until you helplessly bow to Jesus Christ and take hold of him. And when you do, when you do, he will save you and make you one of his own. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we acknowledge to you how slow we are to see beyond the material, to see beyond the immediate, and to be able to fix our hearts in genuine faith upon the unseen. But you have told us these things. You've revealed these things to us in your word. And you've spelled them out with such clarity and such openness that by your grace we can believe and we ask you to give us that grace to believe this evening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.